Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the weekly podcast for The Michael Reed Show on LMFM. This is Michael Reed, and over the course of the next while, we listen back to some of the best parts from the show from the week gone by. On Monday's programme, we heard from uh, the Sinn Féin team negotiating the formation of government. I spoke with Matt Carthy, TD. Now, Matt Carthy, as you probably know, is part of uh, the Sinn Féin negotiating team on uh, the talks for forming the next government. He's been recently elected as a TD for Kevin Monaghan and joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Matt Carthy, and thanks for joining us. And congratulations on your election as a TD. Good morning, Michael, and to your listeners, and thank you very much. Um, it seems like a long time ago already. Mm. We've been, as you mentioned, um, very busy since the election. Oh, absolutely. A somewhat uh, belated congratulations, and uh, I suppose uh, the uh, great uh, enthusiasm uh, that uh, people felt and uh, the feeling of uh, change uh, that was so evident at the time of uh, the election of so many Sinn Féin members uh, is waning at this stage. Uh, can Sinn Féin uh, be part of the next government and if so, how? Well, first of all, I'm not sure whether the enthusiasm has waned. I was out and about in um, Monaghan over the weekend and certainly there is an anticipation on behalf of an awful lot of the people that I've been speaking to that the change they voted for will be implemented. And that has been our priority. There is a concerted effort to distract and to dilute that appetite for change, undoubtedly. Um, but the issues that were raised during the elections are still issues. The families who are at the brunt of a housing crisis, and this applies as much to counties like Monaghan and Loud and Mead as it does to um, to the um, greater part but of it, Dublin. It doesn't World. take away from the fact that Leo Vratker is going to give Donald Trump the bowl of shamrock this year as he did last year and uh, the uh, old government will remain in office until a new government is elected. Is there any hope of uh, forming a government with Sinn Féin as part of it? Well, let's see. Um, we have been working from the, almost the minute that the counting stopped and um, we have been engaging we have been reaching out to other parties to independents and to the various sectors because we want to ensure that a government is in place as quickly as possible of course you had a scenario where essentially um Fine Gael spat the dummy out and went into a week-long sulk after the elections 
Um, Fianna Fáil have been busy talking about who they won't go into government as opposed to what they want to achieve in government. From our point of view, this is about delivering change. So we don't want to just go into government for the sake of it. This isn't about ministerial seats or who gets... Uh, well, you've changed your mind uh, quite dramatically in the course of it all, uh, with uh, the first position being that you were going to form a government of uh, the left, uh, the next position being that it was impossible to form a government of uh, the left, and I think the current position is that you're hoping to form a government of the left. Our position has actually been steadfast, not only since the election, but during the election campaign itself. We said that our preference would be, and it remains, that we could um, instigate a government that didn't include either Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael in order to maximise the delivery of ch- of change. Our worst outcome, or the worst mm. outcome from our perspective, is a government that would include both of those two parties because we know what such a government looks like because mm. we've lived through the realities of those parties in in power for essentially the last century. Mm. So from uh, from our position, yes, we would prefer and want to have a configuration that neither of those two parties were in government. But from um, where we're at now, it is clear that there will need to be some form of an arrangement between two of the three big parties, whether well, that's that be always been in, the way. Government, yeah. in government, in government That's together. always been the way, and you started off, uh, sorry, but what you said a moment ago is just simply wrong. You started off saying that you were hoping to... Uh, be part of the next government. Then you said it wasn't possible, and now you're saying you hope it is possible. No, I don't know how. You oh, I think yeah, I think so. That oh, I could oh, say as being wrong, Michael. What I said was oh, that our preference okay. would be a government that didn't include Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael, and that our worst option would be a government mm. that included both. Yeah. Of them well, last week, Ono Brain and Maldemonster uh, were saying uh, that it wasn't possible. Uh, the numbers just aren't there. Uh, That's now, exactly what yeah. I just said, so, so, Michael. So, so are the are, are, are the numbers there? It is not possible to have a stable government unless there is some form of an arrangement between two of the three big parties. Yeah. What we want to ensure... So is Fianna Fáil have said no, Fine Gael have said no, so Sinn Féin won't be part of the next government, is that...? Well, if those two parties are determined to exclude Sinn Féin, to isolate our, those... Well, they are, they've said they us, are, yeah. Not only for us and for change, but why in yeah. politics to change position? That's yeah. why I got... Yeah, well, there's, no, there's no point in us arguing over it. They've said that they are determined to exclude Sinn Féin. And my job as an elected representative, the reason why mm. people of Cavan Monaghan voted for me and my colleague Pauline Tully, and the reason why people across all constituencies voted for candidates representing change in unprecedented numbers. Remember this, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, even between them, don't have a majority in the Dáil. That is a seismic mm. shift mm. in Irish politics. Mm. Now, those two parties have a choice. They can decide to try and ignore that seismic shift by trying to cobble together some government that will be more of the same and exclude those voices for change. And they probably they will ex- do that. I or mean, they can accept the, yeah. the realities. Well, if they're going it's to most that, likely that that's what they will try to do. Uh, is it Sinn Féin's intention to try and thwart that effort? Uh, in other words, is Sinn Féin asking the Greens in particular and others not to enter into an arrangement with a grand coalition of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil? Well, we're not um, asking or we're certainly not telling other parties what to do, but we are pointing out to all of those parties that you've mentioned that they were part of a mandate for change. And I believe that they would be doing their own voters at the service if they were to facilitate the establishment of a Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael government, for example. But for our part, we're engaging with all of those parties on the basis of policy, because you've seen already 
um, from the briefings that are in, included in today's papers that for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, this is all about positions. So they're arguing about who gets to be Taoiseach or mm-hmm. whether or not there's a rotating Taoiseach. Our conversations with all political parties are actually about resolving the housing crisis, about facing up to the absolute catastrophe that represents our health services, that we actually talk about putting money back in ordinary families and workers' pockets, people who have been stretched beyond limit because of the failure of the previous governments to deal with issues like childcare, to deal with the um, huge um, rent costs, to deal with the insurance rip-off, all of those issues that were pertinent during the election. And this is one of the things that has surprised Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, because they're used to saying one thing during mm. an election and quickly forgetting about it. We don't do that. We know the reasons why people voted for us. They voted for us to implement the changes that we advocated during the election campaign and our job and responsibility right. now. You might be reading our power to ensure that the next government does deliver. You might be reading the newspapers this morning and reading from them uh, that it's a matter about negotiating positions. Uh, other people will read the newspapers uh, this morning and uh, see that it's being claimed uh, that Sinn Féin isn't preparing for positions at all in any government uh, and According to Thomas Byrne, that's why you're holding these Trump-style rallies that you've planned. Listen, Thomas Byrne is getting, I have to say, more desperate as the days go go on. What, are, what are these rallies? What, 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 what's the point of them? What's the objective? Well, this is, again, a novel approach to Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael politicians. We're organising a series of public meetings to inform people of our efforts to establish the government for change that they voted for, where we will actually, in the first instance, be holding um, meetings to hear about people's concerns and suggestions and ideas um, for the next doll mandate. And this is something that we do all the time. We engage with our voters. We don't just disappear for five years after every election. Is the idea to get people to revolt against the inevitable, and the inevitable is uh, that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil will form the next government with whoever joins them in that crusade? No, our, um, the idea is to engage with the electorate, to, to ensure the people can have their say in terms of what we do, but also so that we can hear their own views and aspirations. But you'll be in opposition. For the future. Who knows, Michael? At the moment, there is no prospect of a government because, as I say, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are arguing over who becomes the next uh, Taoiseach yeah, and who that, gets that, what ministerial... You don't, you're, you're, you're not really believing well, all that stuff, right? one thing... I mean, uh, I, you know that this is just a, a matter of getting to the end game where both of them have their backs against the walls. We tried everything else, there's no option and we have no choice but to do a deal with the other side. And that, and that's just going to happen and it has to take ages, forever and a, a day for it to happen so that nobody's nose is out of joint. Well, it appears to me, Michael, that you're suggesting that we just lie back and allow that process to run its course. We're not going to participate in the charade. We want to see the housing crisis resolved. In fact, the very notion... No, I'm saying it's out of your hands. I'm just wondering if you're trying to get people to revolt against what is inevitable, which is that Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael coalition. We want to keep people informed and we want to be informed. And that's why we're holding a series of public meetings. And I think it's telling the um, vitriolic reaction by Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael representatives to the very notion that a political party would hold itself accountable to those people who voted for it. Okay. Um, what we're doing, and this is and this is why there's an urgency in the work that Sinn Féin are doing. Fianna Fáil last week were briefing that it could be the end of April or even early May before a government is in place. Mm. Every day that there is a delay in the formation of an ex-government is a day in which the housing crisis intensifies. The day where families who are living in box rooms of their parents' mm. houses 
um, continue to wonder will their solution ever be resolved. I drove Tell us about it. Morning. Tell us. About, I, everybody I, I is sick of it. Everybody is sick of it, and the exactly. politicians are playing politics and doing what politicians do, which well, is what play we're politics doing is and, what Sinn Fein yeah, do. We're yeah. engaging with our communities okay. and we're trying to find right. the answers. But while all of this, those issues, while, and we're trying to implement the policies that we were elected all on. All right, but while all while all of this is happening, it, it really remains very political uh, and political in the sense uh, that uh, it's uh, delicate in terms of who is talking what they say uh, in respect of forming a government or not forming a government or possibly even holding a- another uh, election uh, this is uh, politics uh, as if it's a, an election campaign do you believe that Angarda Shia Khanna has interfered politically Listen, I'm not going to get involved in what is clearly an attempt to distract away from the issues. By the, gar- by, 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 by the Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris has said that you're being directed uh, by the Army Council of uh, the IRA. Do you believe uh, that that's political interference? Well, I, all I know is that I'm not being directed by any Army Council. In fact, I don't believe that there is any Army Council in play. The IRA have gone away. They've left the stage. That is for the better politics take centre stage I take my Are you asking us not to trust the Garda Commissioner? No I'm asking people to um, to accept that I take direction from nobody other than the people who elect me and the Sinn Féin decision making process which is very open and transparent Okay and in, you're in, a TD uh, yep. you, you may be a, a member of the next government you've spent a long time telling us that you might be uh, and that your party may be in government uh, <laughs> Are you asking us to believe the Garda Commissioner when he speaks or are you asking us uh, to take it with a a grain of salt? I'm telling you that the IRA no longer exists, that I take direction from nobody other than the people who elect me and the Sinn Féin decision-making process. Do you have confidence in the Garda Commissioner? Listen, Michael, why are you trying to distract away from what I'm... Because the Garda Commissioner has said that Sinn Féin is being run by the Army Council of uh, the Provisional IRA. Uh, And uh, either it is or it isn't. And if it isn't, he's wrong and needs to apologise for being wrong or he's being mischievous and is interfering politically. Well, I think if anybody's mischievous, it's people who are misrepresenting what the Garda Commissioner said because he didn't utter the words that you're after attributing to him for a start. But what I'm telling you... Well, he agrees with the MI5 report, doesn't he? Well, listen, and that's... um, We will have our interactions and our discussions with the guards if needs be. But in relation to the politics of the here and now, people want to see the housing crisis resolved. They want to see the health crisis resolved. A huge number of people came out and voted on February the 8th for Sinn Féin candidates in a bid to ensure that they would be resolved. Our job okay, now, so you don't and, and believe it's political answer, interference then, answer, is it? Answer, I'm telling you the situation as I see it. Do you believe, Michael, that I take direction from some unknown group of men or women that compose of an imaginary uh, army council? I'll tell you what I do know. The Garda Commissioner has implied that you do. So well, are, are, are I, you saying that that, that, that that is political I, interference or is it not political interference? I'm telling you what the position is. I'm a senior member of Sinn Féin. It's not a very a difficult question, is it? I'm an elected me- yeah. representative. And you're saying that you don't take direction from the IRA or anybody else. I understand that. But I'm asking you if the Garda Commissioner has interfered politically or if he has not interfered politically. And what I'm telling you, I'm not going to play that game. because It's not a game. There is an attempt to distract away This is from the head the of the police force and, the and how the police force interacts with government. It's a, it's a very, very important issue. 
Listen, the Garda Commissioner is also on the record in the same interview where he was explicit and said that he would happily work with whoever was part of the next government, even if that included um, Sinn Féin. So we'll take that um, and uh, and lead the, take that position on board but, from our perspective. But the Garda Commissioner should be apolitical in his utterances, shouldn't he? Michael, I'm not going to go down that road. I'm not. I'm telling you, my priorities at the moment, I am here in Dublin for a series of meetings. Yes. We're going to be meeting with the Green Party this afternoon. We're going to be talking to them about the implementation of our policy platform because we believe that that implementation will make people's lives better. And that's what we're going to concentrate on. And we're not going to be distracted by attempts by particularly our, our political opponents who are trying to lay uh, the ground uh, the, 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 the work. I would hope that the next government... A government that ignores the mandate for change that I w- um, people delivered on February the 8th. I would hope that the next government, however that's formed, will be apolitical. Uh, or, would, would, I beg your pardon, would feel that the Garda Commissioner should be apolitical. Uh, and that should be policy of government. Uh, and you're saying that you won't comment on what is a fundamental uh, approach to running the country, that uh, the, the, the Gardaí are independent, that they, they don't look on matters in, in a political way. I'm not, I'm not the one who's suggesting that they're doing anything other than that. Well, and I've I'm asked you. It. I've asked you uh, if that... So, so you don't believe that uh, Drew Harris ha- has interfered politically? What I'm saying is, Michael, there have been commentary over the weekend that people like me are taking direction from some group of so-called shadowy figures or whatever term you want. But what you're not saying is whether it was political interference or or not. I mean, Drew Harris was accused of political interference when he arrested Gerry Adams over the murder of Jim McConville during the European elections. Michael, I'm concentrating on the issues on which I was given a mandate to comment on. But you're not answering the question. But what do you want me to say? Well, you can say, yes, it was political interference, or you can say, no, it wasn't political interference. But I'm not playing those games, because these are clearly games to distract away from the issues that are affecting people's lives. There are people listening to your show this morning that are, have faced the brunt of the failures of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael governments across a raft of areas. There are people who are worse off now, um, even though they're back at work, than they were during the period of um, the height of the austerity programme. And they want solutions. They want money put back in their pocket. They want to have affordable childcare. They want to be able to ensure that their children can access the housing mm. market. They want to be able to ensure that they can get to work. And this is a distraction, is it? Every day. What I'm saying is it's it, my belief that there are people trying to distract away from all those issues. Is Drew Harris, one, is Drew Harris one of those people? No, I'm saying the political parties are doing everything in their power and there are some within the media that are facilitating conversations. Are they using what Drew Harris said to distract from those issues? Michael, I'm not allowing them to do so, even if that is their intention, because I am telling you that my job as an elected representative of the Dáil is to ensure that the issues that concern people are addressed. And that's why we've been engaged in intensive negotiations with other political parties. And while some parties are intent on excluding not me, but the people who voted for me, then my job is to face up to that and to try and put forward what uh, an alternative government can look like and what we can deliver. And that's why we're holding public meetings. And that is why, again, the response of other political parties is to distract, to talk about Trump, to talk about everything else, other than the issues that people um, were motivated by on February the 8th. So okay. we've a lot of work- and, that's, and that's why you're not talking about that issue, that issue that I was asking you about. I'm talking about the issues that affect people's mm, lives. Yeah. Um, I'm mm. telling you, 
I take direction from nobody other than the people who vote for me and the Sinn Féin decision-making processes, which is open and and transparent. The IRA, thankfully, have gone away. They've Mm. left the stage. They are no more. If people want to argue otherwise, in my view, they're playing in semantical game playing. And the truth of the matter is that the realities of people's lives need to be addressed in the here and now. And that's what I'm going to be concentrating all my efforts on. So Drew Harris's semantical game playing. No, but Michael, I don't know why you're trying Because Drew Harris said he agreed with that MA five report and that the IRA Army Council, the Provision IRA Army Council, is uh, directing Sinn Fein. It's Drew Harris who said that, so you said that's semantical game playing. No, I'm saying that there are some within our political opponents and within the media who are trying to do everything to distract away from the issues that mobilise people on February the 8th. Okay. Um, and they're going, but and no they're matter, going how matter how many times I ask you, no matter how many times I ask you or how many different ways I try to ask you, you're just not making any comment uh, on Drew Harris making involved. public utterances I'm not like getting that. Invo- I'm not getting involved in what is clearly an attempt to distract people away from the realities of their life into, um, as I say, um, into cul-de-sacs and into um, other conversations. The importance of the mandate that we received last week in the Dáil, for the first time in the history of the state, a candidate other than one from Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael secured the most number of votes to be Taoiseach. Mm. That is what has led to this hysteria in relation to the fact that we're daring to engage with our electorate through a series of public meetings um, and the fact that parties are trying to um, avoid all responsibility for their assertion that they're going to exclude over half a million voters from the discussions in relation okay. to the next government. All right, look, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining thank us you, the programme this morning. Uh, that's uh, Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin TD for Kevin Monaghan. Michael Reed on LMFM. On Tuesday's programme, we heard concerns about local hospital services. Patter Tobin is uh, the founder and leader of the AIM2 party and a TD for Mead West. He's also the chair of the Save Navin Hospital campaign and was telling me why he and his group are concerned that stroke services are being removed from the hospital. Leo Bradker and Mihon Martin meet today for what is being described as exploratory discussions. The talks will be the first step towards an historic grand coalition of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. The prospect of such a union has seemed impossible for the last 100 years, but edges closer with politics proving to be the art of the possible when you're left with no other choice but to bury the hatchet. Policy-wise, there's little between the two parties. Both have recently seen a dramatic fall in popularity and both are determined to stop the rise in Sinn Féin popularity. So between now and April, or May even, the two will spend the next four, eight or possibly... 12 weeks, perhaps, trying to do what's best in the national interest. There are big issues to resolve, like who will be the next Taoiseach, or if uh, they might rotate that role, and will Michal get the first go at the job, or if Leo is willing to step back for a while. Meanwhile, the rest of us think uh, that uh, the national interest lies in other issues, issues like coronavirus, flooding, crime, homelessness, or health. 
Yesterday, 81 patients who were admitted to hospital had to be treated on a trolley because there was no bed available for them on a ward in Limerick. Nationally, 573 were treated on trolleys, 26 locally, with 15 on trolleys in Drogheda and 11 in Navan. The Save Navan Hospital campaign held a public meeting last night. Its chairperson is the leader of the AIM2 party, Pedro TD, who's on the line and a very Good morning to you and uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. I, I take it uh, there is uh, little optimism given that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil policy is to downgrade the hospital. Yeah, so I suppose the background of this is very simply that uh, stroke patients were treated very, very well uh, in Navan Hospital. Um, they had access to CT scans uh, on admission and they had access to thrombolysis, which is obviously the, the most a modern form of treatment for patients uh, with stroke. And indeed, we have a, a record of, of um, 63 fast patients um, being admitted over two years and being treated very, very well. Um, obviously, t- uh, just under two weeks ago, there was a, a statement by the National Ambulance Service which said that uh, ambulance drivers had to bypass Navan Hospital from now on with um, stroke patients. Now, there was no um, consultation whatsoever with anybody. Uh, even the people who work in that area within the hospital turned up for work that morning and uh, had, had nothing to do literally uh, that morning because uh, there wasn't uh, any patients coming in with stroke as a result of, of, the, of the changes. So at the very least, um, we're shocked by the HSE's attitude, one, to our hospital, uh, two, to the patients uh, in our county, um, and three, to the lack of consultation that's happening. So what we've, we've said very clearly is that we are now going to dust down our uh, marching boots and our, uh, we are going to take to the streets uh, and force the government to get in contact and discuss with us about the future of Navan Hospital because this is a, is the background to this, the context to this is, as you say, is a government over the last 10 years who has had the objective to reduce the hospital, to downgrade the hospital from a level three hospital to a level two hospital. And the critical element of this as well is not just the, the dozens of patients that go through with regard to stroke on an annual basis in our hospital, but many of the uh, services that are necessary for stroke mm-hmm. patients are also necessary for the, um, the ICU, for the intensive care unit, are also necessary for the A&E. And uh, the hospital is like a jigsaw. If you take any of these pieces away, after a while then, you lose the ability to run a proper 24-hour A&E. And we've said very clearly, and it is the policy of the government, the governments are looking to close down uh, overnight A&E first and foremost and A&E during the daytime. It's the policy of several governments though, isn't it? Uh, it's not just uh, the Fine Gael-led administrations of uh, the last decade or nine years as uh, the case may be. This goes back uh, to 2008 and has been national policy since Fianna Fáil were in office. It has, but it's interesting that you mentioned obviously the catastrophe that exists down in Limerick at the moment. The same policy that it seeks to close down the A&E in Navan is a policy that closed the A&E in Clare in Ennis and is a policy that closed the A&E in Nina. And here we are, we were told in that transformation uh, process that there would be centres of excellence and the necessary capacity put into place to make sure that patients were treated better, we were told, mm. than uh, the, the existing service. And yes, even with the closures of those two hospitals uh, in those two counties, we have a, a massive w- uh, waiting list and trolley counts 
in Limerick. So there's no doubt in my mind that the process that has been undertaken hasn't been for the betterment of patients, but has been to reduce the spend uh, in those uh, particular elements of the health service. And um, it's also interesting, I think, that this particular cut in our service in Navan happened during just after the election. So we're in a kind of an interregnum period. There's the, in between two administrations, the previous one and the next one. Yeah, well, that brings us to the next question, because you said you're going to dust off your marching boots and to make the government listen. Which government? Well, first of all, what we're looking to do is we, we have, I've been in contact with the Ireland East Hospital Group uh, for 14 months, seeking a meeting with them. And for 14 months, they have refused to give us a meeting. So what we're doing first and foremost is we're going to go to the headquarters of the Ireland East hospital group and we're going to have a picket and protest outside of their building um, and to do that basically we're looking for uh, that group to sit down with us and discuss the future uh, of our own hospital that will happen at 2 p.m on wednesday the 4th of march uh, it's the first step of this process if we don't get a, a consultation a discussion and a return to the services from the ireland east hospital mm. group then we're going to have to take to the streets uh, of County Meath for, uh, at that stage. Uh, we want to be able to do this in, in the most cooperative, uh, most um, logical way with the HSE, with the government, with the Ireland East Group. Um, but if they do not uh, literally sit down with us and talk to us about the future of our hospital, we will have uh, no other alternative but to bring tens of thousands mm. of people. If they do sit down with you, though, most likely, I'm sure you'll agree, they'll tell you that uh, this is in the interest of patient safety and that outcome for patients will be better as a result in this policy change. And uh, I suppose many people listening to us would wonder, why is it you believe uh, that politicians and other people who support you believe you can tell doctors and experts in healthcare what's in the best interest of people who need critical care? Well, first of all, I would say that it's not doctors that are is driving this particular agenda because uh, one of the the, um, the things that we did as a hospital campaign a number of years ago is that we contacted all of the GPs uh, in the Meath area and the vast majority of those GPs signed a document, a letter, uh, which opposed any cuts in Navan Hospital. Uh, and so if, if you're talking about what GPs and doctors want, their interests are to maintain proper services at Navan Hospital. Well, um, I think also, the centralisation of services has uh, the support of consultants and health experts there, globally. Certain, there are certain services that have to be centralised, and we're, we're not arguing about that. There's, for example, trauma does no longer uh, is dealt with in Navan Hospital. Uh, trauma is dealt with uh, in other hospitals, um, larger hospitals, and that's because they're better equipped to do that. Now, the, the, the government states that the throughput of stroke patients uh, through Navan Hospital uh, is not enough. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is, over the last number of years, they've been cutting back all the different pathways for stroke patients to be able to attend Navan Hospital. Um, and if you look at the actual facts, uh, and I, I indicated there, the 63 patients that went through Navan Hospital had access to um, CT antithrombolysis and had positive outcomes. Mm. And there are dozens and dozens of people who are walking around the county of Meath today on the basis of access to Navan Hospital for stroke. And the, the truth of the matter is that stroke is phenomenally time sensitive. People know that. The advertisements that we see in the television tell us that we have to react fast to this. And we have a system whereby you know patients are forced to uh, bypass the closest hospital, that obviously puts a time delay onto the system. And we also know uh, that 
uh, ambulances are very difficult to get at times uh, in County Mead. Mm. Uh, this is because of this new dynamic deployment system that the HSE has. People would look for an ambulance. This ambulance could come from Dundalk or could come from Tullamore. Uh, but we know that these ambulances will now be spending time in traffic in Dublin and potentially waiting outside of hospitals in Dublin. Mm. And that has to hurt. Well, um, there's two strands to it uh, because uh, time is of uh, the essence uh, because it can lead to to the early onset of uh, dementia and so on. There can be very serious complications resulting from a stroke, uh, but it's uh, timely, effective care that uh, is the issue as far as uh, people's outcomes uh, are are concerned. And it's one thing getting timely care but if it's not uh, effective uh, well then it's more or less futile Uh, and if people are listening to us uh, today and they're interested in themselves or their loved ones and they're concerned that if somebody has a a stroke uh, they'd be concerned if if they're being brought to Navin if uh, the care that is given there is not effective and if the HSE is suggesting that the care given to patients taken elsewhere will be uh, better for them that their outcomes will be better that's what people want is it not? Of course, people want their outcomes uh, to be better. There's no doubt. And, you know, the way to make sure that outcomes are better is to have a properly functioning health service and to make sure that it's properly funded. And Navin Hospital has had its funding reduced practically every year for the last 10 years. So, um, you know, we were told that this essentialization process would happen with a new regional hospital uh, to be built in the northeast region. That's never happened whatsoever. So we've had the cutbacks uh, financially in services, uh, etc. But we haven't had um, the alternative new hospital uh, services provided. So we've, we've had all the negative aspects of this process and none of the positive aspects to this. And you started this whole segment mm-hmm. with the fact that the health service itself is creaking under the weight of the demand and because of the lack of capacity. And all we're saying is don't cut capacity in meat. Invest in capacity in meat. If there's ever a problem with regards the quality of services that happens in Our Ladies Hospital in Navan, make sure you focus on funding it properly, uh, making sure that the proper resources, that we have the capacity with regards to beds, uh, the drugs, the technology mm. and the doctors. And if that's a positive way to make sure that uh, treatment is, is improved. There's 200,000 people living in Mead at the moment. When I was a kid, there was 100,000 people living in the county. Very shortly, there'll be a quarter of a million people living in Mead. And yet the the attitude of the HSC and the governments uh, that have happened over the last while has been to reduce that service. And that, is a, that in my okay. view, is a danger to patient safety. OK, well, let's uh, assume for a second that all of your arguments are correct uh, and uh, that the HSC should be persuaded uh, to do otherwise and restore the service in Navin. At uh, what point is there uh, exercising any thought in relation to it, given the current political landscape? Because you're not going to change uh, the medical opinion or the expertise in the HSE who will argue that they know better and that patient outcomes are better elsewhere. And you're not going to convince a government to direct the HSE otherwise because there is no government and the next government will not be in place until... March, April, possibly May, uh, possibly towards the end of May even. Uh, and that government is going to comprise of two political parties, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, who have for over a decade, as you said at the outset, had this at the heart of their national health policies. Well, first of all, first of all I just want to put a lie to the, the statement with regards the changes in the health service are happening for people's best medical interests. 
We know that there are 300 people currently a year dying in Ireland due to hospital overcrowding. So the management of our hospital services uh, in this country currently Mm. are so that they're actually leading to the death of people that uh, could otherwise be saved. Okay. The second issue there is you mentioned about the, the fact that we have a political establishment who has the, a history of closing down services. But we also have a history of standing up for ourselves in Meath. Uh, ten years ago, the, the Save Navin Hospital campaign was formed. There were nine hospitals on a HICWA list, a HICWA hit list, to have their A&Es closed. Navin is the only hospital still standing of those nine hospitals. So the campaign and... Other issues with regards um, well, uh, yeah, the other issues are important. elsewhere yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, has, I mean, has had the effects of actually uh, saving the, the A&E in Navin Hospital. In my experience, there are three things that can make a change in the political uh, system in Ireland. Mm-hmm. First of all, expose injustice. And that's what the hospital campaign has been doing over the years with regards to cuts. The second issue is feed on the streets. There's nothing that the establishment, both the HSC and the politicians, hate more and actually people standing up for themselves uh, and marching. But what the... is the establishment? I mean, this is the point. We're in this yeah. political vacuum. You're not going to change the mind of the independent health authority well, and there is no government. And when well, there, is, there a is a government, it's and going and to be made up of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. This is an important thing. There is a government. Uh, while we are between two administrations, there is still, yes, there's still understand. a minister. Mm-hmm. And that minister has still a responsibility to the people. Mm-hmm. And that minister still has a democratic responsibility to the people. And we're not in some kind of dictatorship at this stage that ministers uh, are entitled to deliver um, decisions without any mm-hmm. referral to the needs of the people. So, you know, we have had a very high success rate as a campaign before in holding the governments to account. We know that this particular cut with regards uh, stroke patients uh, is part of a, a larger project to cut services in the hospital. Mm. And those policies haven't changed, uh, but uh, the ability uh, to bring about change uh, has uh, been scuppered by the lack of capacity, as you said, elsewhere. Uh, Do you accept that it will be a government uh, that uh, will be formed in some way following a coalition of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil? Yeah, in my experience, first of all, with regards to government formation, I think it's deeply frustrating that we have had so much uh, theatrics happen uh, over the last number of weeks. So we've had uh, politicians, you know, say to me that there's not going to be government until uh, April or May. These are the same politicians that just before the election said that there was a massive urgency to deal with the housing crisis, the health crisis, uh, and uh, the crime issues in this country. We've also got politicians, Fine Gael politicians, who have stated that uh, they have to prepare for opposition, as if they needed some kind of plan to mm. walk across the chamber in the doll. And then we had an, another politician who said that there should be some international facilitator to help Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael negotiate with each other. And this, these are two parties with a paper wall between them with regards to differences uh, in their, their, their uh, policies. So what I would say to the political establishment is inject a little bit of urgency here because we have the crisis that you mentioned at the start mm-hmm. of the programme and we have, at the same time, we have politicians pirouetting on the plinth in Leinster House. And what about, the alternative? what about the alternative? A government led by Sinn Féin, is that off the cards? Well, 
in, in my view at this stage, it, it looks like that is the case. It looks like the Fianna Fáil are not going to go into government uh, with Sinn Féin, and it also looks like the Sinn Féin don't have the numbers. And one of the um, reasons people don't want them going into government is this claim that the politicians in Sinn Féin are being directed uh, by the Provisional IRA Army Council. Is that claim true? Well, I have no evidence to verify uh, that claim. And in the 21 years that I was with that political party, I saw no evidence uh, that the, there was an army council directing anybody uh, within that organisation. What I will say, Tina, is that I've said this before and I'm on the record first, uh, is that there is a, a democratic deficit, I believe, uh, within the, uh, the, the party. I believe that the party needs to, to empower its membership far more. You know, I, I, I mentioned that when I was a TD. Does that include its leadership? Well, when I was a TD, the, the, the parliamentary meetings that we had, for me, they felt like focus groups. In other words, no decisions were actually taken. Um, but the, the, let's say the temperature was tested. And, and, and who, led... who is it that's making the decisions then, if it isn't the politicians or the leadership? Well, there's, there's a small group of people around what's called the National Officer Board uh, of uh, that political party. They are, you know, elected from the, the Ordesh. Um, but it's a very centralised decision-making process. And what I would say to, to the leadership of, of Sinn Féin, they have an enormous mandate at the moment. What they need to do is reform their political party. They need to empower their elected reps, allow their elected reps to make more decisions uh, about um, the, the issues that they're, they're facing and make sure that the, the, Ord, the Ordesh actually votes a majority of the Ordcordia and, and when, in the future, because right now it doesn't. When, when you say uh, you've seen no evidence uh, that the decision-makers were members of uh, the Provisional Army Council, uh, have you seen any evidence that they weren't? Well, first of all, in, in any liberal democracy, uh, a lack of evidence is not a proven uh, of guilt. So, in other words, if, if, if there's an allegation made against you, the person that makes the allegation has to prove yeah, the allegation. Of the pe- some of the people you, you talked about were members of the IRA, weren't they? Well, and, and this is the thing. Like we had, a, we had a peace process in this country, and the peace process in this country said to the militarists, desist from violence, become part of the political system in this country, and achieve your objectives in peaceful political ways. And obviously that happened. So yes, there are people within... Sinn Féin, who are former IRA volunteers. But surely that was the objective of the peace process. Now, I'm not here defending mm. uh, a previous party. I'm just giving my honest analysis of, you know, uh, the, the situation. But and you I are saying that, that as a, a former Sinn Féin TD, there was no evidence that the people who were making decisions and directing you and the leadership of uh, the party, there was no evidence that they were not members of uh, the Army Council. What I'm saying to you is I've, I've saw no evidence in all the years that I was in that political party that there was a, an existing army council directing the organisation. And no evidence that there wasn't. But a, a, again, you know, and, and this, is, this is the thing, in a liberal democracy, uh, when you make an allegation, you need to provide evidence of it. You, know, you don't need to provide evidence that uh, Did you you're, ever you're innocent. You need to pro- the, the person making the allegation mm. needs to make an allegation, uh, the evidence that you are guilty. And, that's, mm. it, and, and it, 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 we get into a very strange situation uh, in a society uh, if we leave the rules of a liberal democracy behind. But you're only guilty I, of something if you're doing something wrong, and to some degree that's a matter of perception. Uh, did you ever ask if uh, there was an army councillor or if uh, the people who were making decisions for you and d- directing you and how to act as a, a TD were members of uh, the IRA army council? 
Um, any of the experiences I had within the party, and I was pretty much uh, active at most of the, of the levels uh, of that uh, political party. Indeed, I was asked to join the National Officer Board, and I refused uh, in the end because if I did, I wouldn't have been able to articulate my views on some some issues that I feel mm. very strongly about. Uh, in other words, I would have to have buried my views uh, completely on that. And for me, to be uh, active in politics means you need to stand up for what you believe is important. I've always felt there's no point in me being a TD in Leinster House representing uh, the good people of Mead West if I was simply going to uh, bury my deeply held understanding of how the world works. And so uh, on that basis, I wasn't involved uh, in the National Officer Board. Did you ask, though? I was asked to be a member. No, no, no. Did did you ask uh, if you were taking direction from the Army Council? Well, first of all, I would know if I was taking direction. Um, You you work in a a particular Mm -hmm. uh, business uh, in County Louth. You take direction of people within that organisation. I'm sure you you know who you're taking direction of. Any time that I felt that I was asked to do something by the party that I was uncomfortable with, I stood up for what I believed was right. Mm. But you said that there was no evidence that you were taking direction from the Army Council. There was no evidence that you weren't. Did you ever I no, ask? I, I have no reason to um, to defend my previous political party in this manner. So if I did have evidence, um, there would be it would be logical for me to, to articulate that evidence. I have articulated previously that I understand there to be serious Democrat, Democrat uh, deficit uh, within that political party, and I've come under sustained attack from members of that party mm. for, for saying that. So it's not a case I'm afraid... OK, well, I just... I, I, I'm sorry. I, I think people listening now will think it's a little bit odd that you're not answering that question. And if you don't want to answer that question, that's fine. I'm I'll sorry, stop I, asking I, it. But the question is, did you ask uh, if uh, the direction was coming from the Army Council? Did you ever ask that question? I didn't ask that question, no. OK. All right. We'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed for joining us thank on the programme this morning. That's Peter Tobin, uh, the leader of uh, the AIN2 party. He's a, a TD for Mead West and chair of uh, the Save Navin Hospital campaign. Michael Reed on LMFM. Wednesday was Ash Wednesday on the Roman Catholic Church calendar and Bishop Michael Reuter spoke to us about Ash Wednesday in the context of the ongoing gangland feud in Drogheda. Well, it is a National No Smoking Day, which always coincides with Ash Wednesday, a very important day in the Roman Catholic calendar. Earlier today, I spoke with the Auxiliary Bishop of Armagh, Michael Reuter, who had this Ash Wednesday message. Uh, well, in relation to today, today is Ash Wednesday. It's a very important day in the, the life of the Church. It's the beginning of the season of Lent. And the season of Lent is the season when we prepare uh, for the celebration of Easter, for the uh, death, the celebration of the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's always marked by uh, being a period of time of prayer, first and foremost. Um, we oftentimes look at Lent as being sort of a negative time, but actually it's a very a positive time is when we do a little bit more rather than do a little bit less. Uh, so uh, it's a time, first of all, of prayer and, and preparation for the central event in the Christian calendar, which, of course, uh, is Easter. So I'd encourage people uh, to, to pray a little bit more. 
perhaps uh, to attend a religious service maybe a little bit more often than they might do uh, in the normal times. Uh, also, uh, the sacrament of confession is there as well, and, and there will be extra opportunity during the season of Lent to receive that sacrament as well, to receive the, the grace of, of God's forgiveness. Uh, so, so it actually is quite a positive time rather mm-hmm. than a negative time when we think about giving up things, which is all important too. I think we have to try and distance ourselves a little bit from the sort of materialistic world in which we live in nowadays and just take a pause and a breather from that and, and to kind of uh, to, to see where our life is going and not get too caught up in the, in the worries and cares of, uh, of life and uh, the, the struggle, the constant struggle to have more and more all the time. So my message today to people was, would be to look at, at this season of Lent beginning today as a very positive time uh, a time that hopefully uh, they will um, be of benefit to them personally and to their families uh, and also to the community. We, mm. we need to, to, to pray so much nowadays for, uh, for our country, particularly at this time when we're still trying to put together a government and when we face a lot of, of, of challenges. And uh, in our society, and a lot of challenges in our community, and a lot of us trying to balance faith with how we live our lives uh, and how others live their lives, and the threat uh, that they pose to ourselves and other people in the community. Uh, and you talk about confession and sinning are all sins forgivable, including murder and attempted murder. All sins are, are, are forgivable, but there has to be repentance, there has to be an acknowledgement of the seriousness sometimes of, of what is done, and uh, that forgiveness may be dependent upon a person, for instance, in the case of, of, of murder, of a person actually um, bringing them, putting themselves forward, uh, giving themselves into the authorities, uh, accepting the punishment that comes uh, with that, because it's that's a very very serious example. I mean, the vast vast majority of people uh, would never be involved in something like that. But there's always like if somebody came to me uh, in, in the confessional, uh, confessing a sin as serious as that, you would do everything in your power to convince them uh, that they need to to hand themselves over, that they need to uh, to to contact uh, the civil authorities and uh, to accept whatever uh, punishment may be coming as a result yeah. of that. And uh, I suppose uh, there's been at least uh, three murders locally as part of uh, this ongoing gangland feud, as it has become known, uh, quite possibly five murders, if you include uh, Willie Mohan and his Latvian girlfriend, Anna, who are missing and presumed dead. Uh, and indeed, uh, Joe Mohan presumes that his son, Willie, has also been dismembered, just like Keane Mulready was. And there's been numerous uh, attempts to take uh, the lives of others. You've reached out in the past, Bishop Bruter, uh, to uh, these gangs and asked to discuss what is happening with them and to try and bring about a, a change. And you have heard from one of uh, the people involved in this dispute who says they see no way out. Well, that's what was reported in, in the newspapers. I have an intermediary in the Drogheda area who, is, uh, who knows these people, who, who's making 
uh, contact with them and just contact with them for other reasons. And uh, one of them did uh, mention to him that he, he would like to, uh, to speak to me. Uh, but unfortunately, due to various different reasons and the situation there at the moment, that wasn't able to happen. Uh, so he didn't actually speak to me uh, directly, but he spoke to the, the intermediary who, who tried to arrange uh, a meeting with him. But uh, because of the fear that's there at the moment, a lot of people involved have sort of gone to ground. So it is very difficult to make uh, contact at this time. But I'm still open to that. If, if, if someone wishes to, uh, to talk to me or to contact mm-hmm. me directly, uh, there is no problem with that whatsoever, and I'm willing to do so. And did this person explain to you, your contact, uh, explain to you uh, why it is uh, that uh, this uh, gang member would like to speak to you as a, a bishop? Well, he probably has heard that I have uh, offered to, to speak to people in a, you know, without, without judgment, without any prejudgment whatsoever. And uh, I think this person was frightened by what was happening and what was the situation in, in Drogheda at the moment and uh, the possibility of uh, the same thing happening to him that happened uh, to the poor unfortunate Keane Mulready Woods. Uh, so he, he wanted, first of all, just to, to talk about his own personal situation and uh, to, to, to see could anything, anything possibly uh, be done to, to uh, ease the anxieties and the fears that he has and that others have in the area. As I understand it, uh, one of the gangs involved in this dispute uh, would consider themselves to be Roman Catholics uh, and uh, would consider themselves uh, to be regular mass goers uh, and would uh, attend to the sacraments uh, whenever uh, they uh, occurred in their lives. Uh, But uh, when you talk about sins of this nature and how all of these sins are forgivable, you said uh, that a number of things have to happen in order to receive forgiveness. Uh, What message would you have to them, Bishop? Are are, are they welcome in the church as uh, things stand while uh, this behaviour continues and uh, whilst this violence continues? Well, I I don't like to to make any personal judgment on an individual's faith or an individual's involvement with with a particular church. I think anyone who who, uh, contemplates uh, carrying out something as vicious as the attack on, on Keane Mulready Woods, I don't really think that, that, that faith is a major uh, issue for them or that they have any real deep or, or significant faith. Uh, there may be people in their families who do, and I think it's very important that we, we don't paint all their associates and all their relatives and all their friends uh, with the same brush. Uh, I, I think it's very important that we remain open to people uh, we remain as welcoming to people as possible and to give those people who may be associated with some of these gangs uh, the support they need. That's what has to be a very difficult time uh, for them as well. Not everyone. There's only a very, I think there's a very, very small uh, circle, inner circle, who are involved in these terrible crimes. Not everybody in their circle is. Mm. Uh, so I don't, think, I don't think we can be in any way judgmental 
about anybody or what their motivation may be. It's not unusual for church leaders to be asked questions like this uh, when you think of uh, church leaders in Italy and questions that would be asked about members of the Mafia. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's not unusual, but, you know, I, I, I think we just have to be careful about making individual judgments about anybody. Uh, apart from the violence and uh, the loss of life and the threat to life, uh, there's obviously uh, the profits that are made on the back of selling drugs to young people, destroying lives uh, to a large degree, if not ending those lives uh, because of overdoses and the like. Uh, for the people who are involved uh, in this trade and the violence that comes on the back of it, uh, should they be going to Mass? Should they be receiving communion? Should uh, they be getting married in the church? Should they be christening their children in the church? Should they uh, hope to receive a Christian burial themselves? Well, I, I think you're, you're kind of pressing me there a little bit is, again to make a personal judgment on individuals. Uh, I, I honestly don't think a lot of the individuals who are involved in this inner circle have any interest in, in faith or religion or maybe any interest in what I would say anyway. Uh, so I'm not going to make individual judgments. I think it's up to everybody and it's up to everyone in the, in the quiet of their heart and the relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, to, to, to make those decisions. We as a church are a wounded church. We're there to, to help people. We're like, the, as Pope Francis says, uh, a field hospital uh, in the middle of a war. Uh, we're there to, to, to comfort people and to give them whatever help that they need, not to make judgments of people, not to say, you're a, you're a sinner, you're an extreme sinner, uh, you should be outside of the, of the, the church completely. Uh, we are there to help everybody, uh, and uh, that's following in the model that, that, that Jesus had. Jesus um, sat down with sinners. He ate with sinners. He received huge um, criticism from the powers that be in his, in his country at that time uh, because he did that, because he mixed with people who were seen to be outcasts and on the margins of society. Uh, but we as a church, we've oftentimes, mm. I suppose, in the past, have set ourselves up a little bit, you know, as a morally righteous uh, and a moral high horse to some degree. Uh, that, I think, has changed. Uh, we're a church of sinners uh, there to help those who have sinned and to bring them back into the fold. Uh, and. There's awful things happening in the heart of our community and uh, I suppose we're all acutely aware of what that means. Uh, but uh, have you anything to say, Bishop, to the relatives, friends, family, neighbours of those who are involved in all of this? If they believe uh, that somebody is known to them who is posing a risk to other people in the community, is there a duty on them to act, do you think? Well, I think there is. I, I, I have to take into account the fear that may be there and the, the level of, of, of threat uh, that they may feel. But I think there is a duty on everybody who knows anything at all uh, to maybe, first of all, if they, if they don't feel that they can give information to the authorities, to try and convince their, their family member or their neighbour or their friend or whatever uh, that this is uh, unacceptable, this behaviour and to try and to, 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 to talk them out of it in some way. But if that's not going to work, it's difficult for it to work perhaps, uh, you know, there has to be 
an onus on people to to pass that information on to the uh, to the civil authorities. Would you consider it a, a sin not to pass on that information, Bishop? Well, I, once again, you see, you're, you're asking me to make to make a judgment. I think everyone has to to make that judgment in their own lives, considering their their own particular situation. With respect, I suppose uh, I'm not asking you to make a judgment. I don't feel I am asking you to make a judgment. I hope that I'm not. Uh, and uh, I would hope uh, that you might be able to offer guidance uh, to people who would consider themselves to be members of the church, uh, but have information that they're not acting on. Yes, well, I, you know, I, I don't know what their own individual situations are and how much fear they have from perhaps their own life in that situation. Uh, but yes, the guidance is definitely, if there's any information uh, that can stop this, the scourge of, of drug abuse uh, or particularly um, stop the, 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 the bloodshed, uh, yes, I think there is a very strong onus on people uh, to pass on inf- any information that they have. Um, but each person is in a different situation. Um, each person is judging their own situation, I suppose, and the level of, of fear and threat that may be there. So, you know, yes, definitely, I'm fully uh, back that call to, to for people to come forward and to give information. Uh, but understanding as well uh, the difficulty of the of the situation that some people may find themselves in at the moment. Okay. Bishop Bruter, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. The Auxiliary Bishop, Bishop of Armagh, Michael Reuter. Michael Reed on LMFM. Concern has been growing all week about the coronavirus or COVID-19. On Thursday, I spoke with local GP, Dr. Mary Scully. Susan from Loud says that there seems to be mixed advice um, being given to people regarding those who have travelled to affected areas and are home that the HSE are saying unless you so unless Your you show symptoms, symptoms yeah. that you should proceed as normal if you don't have any symptoms. Yeah. But some schools are telling students who have been abroad to these areas to stay at home even though they aren't showing any symptoms. Mm. So that there's mixed messages coming. Well that's the school's confusion it would seem. It seems to be a different policy in Northern Ireland than here but the HSE advice is uh, to continue as normal unless you're showing symptoms. Another listener texter says, what is the cause of this virus, Michael? And are there any medicines available to treat it? Finally, what should we, the general public, be doing to avoid getting it? Okay, let's uh, try and get uh, answers uh, to some of uh, those questions. Dr. Mary Scully is a GP from Abbey House Medical Centre in Navan and on uh, the line. Good morning, Dr. Scully, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, Perhaps uh, you could take up on uh, some of the questions our our callers were asking there. Uh, Maybe we'd begin with masks. I think actually you're being advised not to use masks uh, because uh, you could go around with the virus on the mask because you could pick it up on your hands and be touching the mask with your hands. Is that right? Yes. Good morning, Michael. Morning to you. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of confusion about this new virus. It's called COVID-19 now, um, as opposed to coronavirus. Um, It's an absolutely new virus, and that's why there is a lot of confusion about its spread, you know, incubation periods, who's going to get it. You know, so we're all trying to learn this stuff as fast as we can. Mm. But at the moment, the advice is that for prevention of getting COVID-19, face masks are really of very, very limited benefit. 
the main way of, of picking up this virus is through droplet spread onto hands, then hands onto mouth and then, you know, or onto nasal mucosa or even eyes, you touch your eyes and then you have it. So the only protection that face masks might give you is to prevent you from putting your hands up to your face and mouth. Mm. But in terms of droplet spread and inhaling the virus, they really are of limited benefit. And that is why the HSE have advised really that there's not really an awful lot of point to wearing face masks to try and prevent getting disease. It's much more different if you're either a health professional dealing with somebody who has got the virus or if you actually have the virus yourself, well, then you want to prevent droplet spread, you know, from yourself and then face masks are really important. But for the general public, um, hand hygiene is really where it's all at. And that's washing your hands and using sanitizers, I take it. Yes, washing your hands thoroughly um, and completely. And there is actually, you know, you can get hand washing guidelines on the mm. HSE website about how to do this properly because people sort of think a rinse under the tap is enough but that's not enough warm water and it should be warm and soap and for a minimum of 20 seconds minimum 20 seconds and you have to um, rub your hands together and you have to rub in between your fingers you have to get your thumbs you have to do your palms of your hands um, you know, so you have to to do all that properly it takes at least 20 seconds. OK, could you address uh, some of uh, the confusion uh, that there is very clearly at this stage? Schools uh, obviously travelling uh, for various reasons to various countries, uh, some of the affected countries coming back home in Northern Ireland, uh, they're being told to, to self-isolate uh, here. They're being told to, to go about their business unless they're showing symptoms of some sort. And as we've heard, some schools have said otherwise. Uh, what are your thoughts on all of that? Well, again, this is part of the general kind of, you know, lack of knowledge about this virus so far. And that's why there is conflicting advice. And that's why both sets of advice could at the same time be correct, even if conflicting, because we don't really know exactly the answer as to whether asymptomatic people can be incubating and therefore spread the virus, or if it's only when you're sick and actually coughing and sneezing and spluttering, and that's when you're going to be spreading the virus. So therefore, Mm. you know, it's very reasonable for the HSE to say that unless you have symptoms, you can take it that you're okay to go about your normal daily business. And coughing... Yeah, uh, and uh, splitting and spluttering, I think uh, you said. Uh, That that sounds more like a a cold. Is this like a a flu? Well, it is a respiratory virus. So so therefore, the symptoms are very like lots of other respiratory viruses, including flu. So the symptoms are going to be that you're going to feel fluey, headachy, sore throat, and then you're going to develop a cough and, you know, uh, uh, and maybe some shortness of breath as well. So, you know, most cases, fortunately, it's looking like that they are generally mild to moderate infections, such as like a flu, where you're going to be feeling pretty miserable, but you will recover. Mm. And then on the unfortunate people who may have underlying you know, illnesses or they're elderly and frail, uh, exactly the sort of people that flu gets as well. You know, those are the people that are much more at risk of death from this virus. Mm. So it's a form of flu with the same risks for people who are in at-risk categories. Yes, it's very similar to influenza. You know, and it's mm. interesting as health professionals 
that there's this complete panic about um, influenza or about COVID. Yeah. And, mm. and yet, you know, people don't bother getting the flu vaccine, mm. you know, which is actually probably a much more serious infection. Up to date, this is. I mean, you know, somebody said to me, I was at a GP meeting last night and somebody said there's been 20,000 deaths in the UK mm. from flu this year. Yeah. And, you know, nobody talks about that. Well, if they do, they say, well, but it's only a, a touch of the flu. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, if you have a, a touch of uh, the flu, uh, undoubtedly, you'll know that that's not a cold and it feels very different to it. And you tend to be very, very sick, uh, if not in a life-threatening situation, uh, as can be the case with this. And nobody wants uh, to contract uh, such a, a condition. Uh, and what should people do? Uh, we've heard the concerns of people there uh, who have travel plans. Uh, should they travel to affected areas? Well, that's you know, at the moment is an individual call. Um, you know, if somebody is you know healthy, young, um, and there have been limited number of cases in the area they're traveling traveling to, well, then you know you know it's probably not unreasonable to go ahead, and that's probably why their insurance won't cover them if they decide to cancel them. Um, on the other hand, if you are elderly, if you have underlying health conditions, and there is a big outbreak in the area that you're going to, as opposed to a few sporadic cases, then, you know, it would be advisable not to go to that area until, you know, things are a bit more clear and perhaps the outbreak has been contained. Mm. And we are seeing places in lockdown uh, and uh, so on. Uh, and that is uh, the advice from the HSE. Should anybody uh, end up with uh, this virus, uh, they should stay at home uh, and uh, not even open the door, uh, phone people rather than uh, leave the house or, or speak to people face to face. Yes, it's all about containment. If you, uh, you know, and I think it's probably inevitable it will arrive in Ireland since it seems to be, you know, spreading across the world. Um, so if you do develop this, this virus, you treat it, as say, very much like the flu, and it is droplet spread by people in the same room as you when you're coughing. So, you know, it is very much avoid going out, um, avoid being with other people. If you have to talk to people, exactly that, do it um, by phone. And similarly, and I'd like to stress this as well, because, um, you know, in, in a GP surgery, we're very conscious that we have a lot of sick people mm-hmm. here anyway. Um, so if there is any suggestion at all that if you've been to an area where you think you may have come in contact with the COVID virus and you have symptoms, please do not come to your GP surgery. It's the last place you should be going to. Stay at home mm. and ring your GP for advice or there is a HSE um, helpline available mm. which is um, available 8 to 8 um, from uh, Monday to Friday and I think 10 to 5 on on Saturdays and Sundays. So that's available again on the HSE website. And, you know, that's another potential thing that you could do. All right. Uh, By the way, just uh, before we hang up from you, are you hearing uh, from all of your patients uh, about coronavirus and the concerns they have? uh, Like, are are people coming into you with a a sore toe and asking you about coronavirus? No, not so much. Um, We have, funnily enough, noticed a very slight reduction in numbers of people attending us and we were wondering right. you know if mm. perhaps people are getting a little bit more worried about attending kind of crowded places mm. where there may be people you know um, unwittingly who have COVID virus so you know there has mm. been a very very small reduction in people going and we we maybe are thinking is that what, what, what people are, are thinking but uh, it's not coming up a lot in okay. the surgery at mm. the moment no. Okay. All right. Very interesting. Thank you very much indeed for taking our call. That's uh, Dr. Mary Scully, GP from Abbey House Medical Centre in Navan. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. LMFM. 
On Friday, the first person charged in connection with the murder of Keane Mulready Woods appeared in court. Marco Driscoll was at Drogheda District Court for us. Let's go to Drogheda District Court. Our reporter, Marco Driscoll, is on the line. Good morning, Mark. What can you tell us? Well, good morning, Michael. Um, Finally, proceedings got underway here just a short time ago. It was a quick um, brief appearance before the court for a 50-year-old man. Um, His name um, is Gerard McKenna, and he is charged in connection with impeding the apprehension or prosecution of someone in relation to the murder of Keane Mulready-Woods. So obviously it's it's not a charge of murder, it's a lesser charge um, in so far as it's impeding the apprehension or prosecution of someone else in relation to the crime. Okay, and there was no further detail, uh, I take it, in relation to how he may have impeded uh, the uh, prosecution of somebody else? No, we spoke to Sergeant Garda Peter Cooney, who gave evidence in court this morning. He said that he rearrested the accused last night at 8.22pm and put the charge to him. And after the charge was put to him, um, I'm sorry now, Michael, I'm just getting up my notes here. Mm-hmm. It, he made the reply, no thanks, um, no, after the charge was put to him last night. And we spoke to the sergeant as he was leaving the courthouse here uh, a brief time ago, but he was very tight-lipped and said that he couldn't reveal any further details about the charge. No thanks, no. That's a, a, an odd response to a charge uh, as serious as this. Jared McKenna, you say, is uh, this man's name. He's 50 years of age. Uh, do you have a, a, an address for him? Is he from Drogheda or where is he from? From, you yes, know? he would be local of Rathmullen Park in Drogheda, Michael. OK, uh, and what else can you tell us about uh, Jared McKenna? How did he appear to you in court this morning? Well, he, he did seem relaxed. Um, he appeared in a black zip-up top, a grey tracksuit bottoms, and uh, surprisingly enough, navy flip-flops and socks as well. He didn't speak throughout uh, the brief appearance before the court, and then Judge Aaron McKiernan uh, remanded him in custody to appear before Cloverhill District Court next Thursday. Um, no application for bail was made, um, and Gardy just asked for 48 hours' notice should the accused um, wish to make an application for bail before that meeting of Cloverhill District Court next Thursday. Okay, well, Gardy announced early this morning, just before nine o'clock actually, uh, that this court appearance would happen at 10 o'clock, they said. uh, So people would have become aware of it locally from around nine o'clock onwards. Were there many people at the District Court in Drogheda this morning uh, to see what was happening? Well, it's always hard to judge, Michael, because obviously it's a sitting of the court as normal today as well. So a lot of people are before the court for for different reasons. So they fill up some of the gallery. But um, there definitely was some local interest there this morning. I suppose an air of anticipation before the accused was brought out um, insofar as, you know, people were wondering who could have possibly been involved in, in this kind of brutal murder. Now, of course, there are only charges at the moment and nothing has been proved. There are only allegations. But who people were were interested to see who possibly Gardy think was involved in this brutal murder. Okay, and was anything said uh, on behalf of uh, Jared McKenna in his uh, defence in court today? No, as I said, he he remained tight-lipped throughout the throughout the the brief appearance before the court. The only words that we heard that he did say was last night when he was rearrested. Again, he made the reply to the charge: "No thanks, no." Okay, Uh, and he'll be in custody then until Thursday of next week and the hearing then will be in Clover Hill, is it? 
Yes, remanded in custody until Cloverhill District Court's meeting next Thursday, the 5th of March at 10.30am. OK, but no application for bail in, in the interim, uh, so uh, he'll obviously uh, be held until that hearing uh, takes place uh, and we'll hear more undoubtedly uh, before that hearing. Uh, that's on Thursday of next week. Mark, thank you indeed uh, for Thanks, joining Michael, us. Uh, just, just to add, his solicitor, Mr David Thompson, did ask that his client receive the appropriate medical attention while he remains in custody for the next week and legal aid was also granted to the accused. OK, and did we hear any reason for uh, medical attention? No, there was no reason given, just that the, the court make sure that he receive a, the appropriate attention when he's remanded in custody. OK, and just repeat the charge for us once more, if you would, please, Mark. No problem, Michael. So he's charged in connection with impeding the apprehension or prosecution of someone else in relation to the murder of Keane Mulready Woods. It is a bit of a mouthful, but the yeah. Gardaí were very specific on the charge, and you must stick to the book with this. So it is what it is. Um, you can possibly draw conclusions from it, but that is what the charge is on the charge sheet. Okay, that's a fifty-year-old Jared McKenna of Rathmullen Park in Drogheda, charged with impeding the apprehension or prosecution of another individual in relation to the killing of seventeen-year-old Keane Mulready Woods on uh, the twelfth of. January as we know uh, Keane was uh, brutally murdered his body was uh, dismembered and uh, body parts were left in uh, different parts of uh, Dublin City he was buried uh, in part uh, because his torso has not yet been recovered and a search continues for that thank you indeed uh, to Mark O'Driscoll of LMFM News for that report from Drogheda District Court breaking news for you this morning as we leave you hope you have a lovely weekend and God willing we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye and there you have it just some of the issues that we've been discussing on the radio over the course of the last week on the Michael Reid Show on LMFM we have another podcast for you next week. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.